Comments made on the Ceratalk Podcast Network are those of the individuals and do not represent Ceratech Corporation, its staff, management, board of directors, or third-party resellers. It's time for High Contrast, Episode 2, here on the Talk Podcast Network, SPN for short. This is the show that will discuss low vision topics uh, for those people that are sort of trapped between sight lines, not really blind, not really perfect vision. This week we have a wonderful crew. To my virtual left is Mari Hill of AISquared.com slash blog. Hi, Roger. <laughs> Hello, Mari. Thanks for being here. To my virtual right is going to be Jeremy Curry of GW Micro. Hey, Rodney. How are you today? Doing well. And we also have a honored guest, the myth, the legend, the blue cheese lover, Joe Steinkamp of Ceratalk Podcast. I was waiting to see where you were going with these analogies. Was I up in the balcony with Statler and Waldorf? Was I off the stage right? Was I up in the catwalk? I wasn't really sure where you were going with the uh, theatricals there, but happy to be here, guys. And uh, awesome show last uh, uh, last episode. You guys did a, an amazing pilot. Yeah, for those new to the show, Joe is going to be sort of the uh, producer, the technical director in the background. He will join us if someone is not able to actually be on a particular recording. And what kind of comments did you get from episode one, the pilot? Yeah, there were a lot of real positive comments. Everybody was very happy that we were doing a show about low vision. And uh, this show uh, was kind of where end of line is a show here on the network that I kind of wanted to do. Uh, This show was a show that I felt like we needed to do. And I feel like we needed to do this show because there's so many people who don't understand what it's like with low vision, where you fit, how you do some things, what, what is it you see? What isn't you don't see? How do you explain that to people? Where's your comfort level? These are all topics that, wouldn't fit on any of our other shows. And so it needed its own show. And people have responded very positively with that. We've gotten uh, emails um, from Pam, from Margaret, and a couple of eye reports that have told us that this was the kind of show that people were looking for. And I know that there are a couple of other shows out there on ACB Radio and some others that are doing this. But the thing that's going to separate us from those guys, and the reason why we think you'll keep coming back is, is we're going to talk about some things that are kind of uncomfortable to talk about. How do we deal with some of these issues personally as people with low vision? And then the fun stuff, you know, what are some great things that you can do uh, like uh, on the iPad reviews and things like that, that are out there that you can actually you know have fun with because it's not all terrible. There's a lot of great things that are out there. There's a lot of wonderful things that are out there now technology wise uh, that we never had in the last three to five years. So that's what we're going to focus on. And I'm really happy that we're able to go to series with this show because there was enough downloads and enough positive comments that we actually could move into a full-time series with you guys. So congratulations and awesome job. Excellent. (laughs) Always good to have great feedback. Uh, If you would like to, you can send comments to resources at serotalk.com. We are looking for possible topics for future episodes. So please uh, drop us a note. Let us know what you might like to hear discussed. I think the biggest comment that we had seen from emails was that I don't feel alone now. So that's a good thing. Uh, and hopefully we can keep that going. Uh, right now we are on iBlink radio that you can get for iOS and Android. And you can also go to serotalk.com for more information. 
Recently, the Google Autonomous Car has made a big splash as far as the visually impaired community because at the end of March, they released a video of Steve Mahan of California, who was actually able to take a test drive in the Google Car. Uh, this was sort of a celebration by Google to say that, hey, we have actually traveled 200,000 miles without an incident, and we're hoping to progress on into other states and everything. This is a major step. So for the blind community, it seems like there may be a little bit of a limitation because you have to be a licensed driver. And a lot of people are probably going to be nervous about a blind person not being able to interact with the car itself. What do we think about the visually impaired being able to jump into this? Jeremy, I know you are a little bit excited (laughs) about this. (laughs) I, I I just love this concept. I've been waiting for technology like this for a long time now. I had to give up driving, I guess it's been four or five years ago now. I used to be what's called a, a bioptic driver, where even if you're close to the legally blind limit, you go through special training and there's all these special rules of field tests and things you have to do to be able to drive um, with these special glasses. And when I finally lost that ability. It was very difficult, not only because of your independence, but also emotionally, it's very difficult. And I live in a location where I'm in a very rural area. I have literally zero public transportation. And so I'm completely dependent upon others to be able to take me places. And the idea that there's actually a vehicle that I could just someday hop in and tell it where to go is just fascinating to me. I can hardly fathom it. And so when I was watching the video and um, just learning about all of the things that Google is doing and how they're doing it with this particular autonomous car, I I just got super excited. And so while there are some limitations today where you have to have another person with you and that person has to be licensed, I think that this shows that there are possibilities for the future. And it's another avenue that provides hope, at least in my mind, that um, maybe I can even gain some of that independence back. And I'm sure a lot of others, and probably Maureen, Rodney, I guess you would both agree with me. I'm I'm curious uh, that you really would just love to have that ability just to hop in a car and go wherever you want back again. Yeah, I'm with you, Jeremy, on that one. I stopped driving about 10 years ago, and it was more of a cut and dry kind of a horror story that ended well. (laughs) The last day I drove, I was driving down my dirt road in tiny town, Jeffersonville, Vermont, and I saw something that I thought maybe it was someone walking or a jogger, and I drove around it and looked over, and when I looked over and was close enough at that point to see exactly what it was, it was a woman pushing a double baby carriage. So I drove home, parked my car, and never drove it again. And then I moved down here to Manchester, Vermont, where Vermont Transit used to go through here. I could walk a block to a bus stop and potentially go anywhere in the world because I could take the bus to Albany Airport blah, blah, blah. However, (laughs) they cut off that route since then. I had a child since then. When I moved down here and decided not to drive, I rode my bike around and everything was good. But life circumstances change. And would I want to hop back in a car? 
Absolutely. Yeah, I haven't had that uh, experience. I had my uh, vision condition since birth. So the closest I've gotten is being a terror on a bicycle or uh, actually riding ATVs, all-terrain vehicles before, you know, like a four-wheeler or something like that. So, yeah, to me, it's definitely a big step. Plus, an autonomous car, if it could actually be adopted by people, it would probably make uh, life a little bit easier in cities. Uh, I'm in Raleigh, North Carolina, which was voted, I believe, in 2009 as one of the fifth worst uh, pedestrian places to walk because of the car drivers that you had. So <laughs> for me, I kind of would look at that because we have a lot of uh, people from other countries that have not been driving before and things. And you can just tell that there's a lot of inexperienced drivers out there. Or if I remember right from driver's ed, they would say a, a large percentage. I can't remember if it was 70, 80 or 90, but it was pretty high percentage. They would say uh, of accidents are due to human error. And while there's probably some fear from, um, a generation that's not used to technology of having an autonomous car on the highway. I think the you know, probably 18 to 34 year old crowd is probably going to accept this a lot more. And ultimately it's a lot safer. You can limit speed easier. So you won't necessarily have people racing um, that would cause accidents. Uh, you, you eliminate that possibility of human error as long as the computers function properly, which I would hope there would be lots of testing and there is lots of testing going on. And I think that um, among all of Google's tests, they've only had one accident and that's when they actually took control of the car manually. So it was probably a human error that caused that particular accident, which I think is kind of ironic. I'm curious how they came up or why they decided to do this in the first place. I mean, they use someone that's totally blind to showcase what they've done, but what was the reasoning behind creating the autonomous car in the first place? Does anyone know that? It was the Night Industries 2000. Uh, it goes back to the 80s. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. My, uh, David Hasselhoff. Um, in fact, they they should have just had him as a spokesperson for it. I think would work out much better. Everybody's given their vision uh, acuities on the previous show. I'll do mine very briefly. Uh, I was born with uh, two eyes, but lost my right eye uh, in 18 months. I've had over 70 eye surgeries, so my right eye couldn't take the pressure anymore, and uh, it ruptured. So I lost my right eye when I was very young and have no memory of that. So I've grown up with one eye and uh, had cataract, glaucoma, and retinal tear, and a whole bunch of other fun stuff, but uh, I'm what's called a floater. So one day I get up at 2200, I could be 2800. The next day, I never know. I'm allergic to air. Uh, I have severe science problems. So uh, I rely on uh, non-visual techniques more than I rely on my vision because it's just not um, reliable. But I grew up as the son of a race car driver, so... Never had the need to worry about uh, cars and uh, family with cars everywhere. So I, it never really, really bothered me. And I have driven in things like that before, but not, you know, out on the streets. It was mostly on, you know, empty fields and, you know, race car tracks and stuff like that. Um, but I don't necessarily lie awake at night wishing that I, I had it. I understand the reason why people do. And I understand having worked with people in the Division for Blind Services, uh, people who have to make that transition to the stories that you guys talked about, about putting away the keys so they're not driving a 4,800-pound weapon. It is a very hard decision to make. 
but so will be taking on this car because you have to think that there's going to be a lot of maintenance involved because there's sensors all over this thing. If you weren't very car aware before, you may have to be also technically aware to be able to clean lenses or what have you. And then the insurance on this thing initially is going to be unreal, I would think, because there is going to be that initial fear by people that uh, saw maybe maximum overdrive by Stephen King years ago. 1987. Uh, (laughs) Exactly. That the uh, machines will take over and there will be that need to control. And uh, it's a shame because I agree with Jeremy. If, if there's, you know, less control uh, and and more trust in the technology and, and there will be lots of testing that they won't let these things on the streets until they really, really know. But the military is already using them. DARPA was already looking into this technology before Google did. So there's been lots of years of testing on this. Some are saying that it's like three to five years. I don't know that we will see this in 10 years, but I am with everybody else because I am I live outside of Houston and uh, there isn't any metro out here either. And it would be nice to be able to jump into the car or like in uh, Total Recall, jump into the Johnny Cab and just give it instructions. Um, so th- again, I think there are two things here. There is the technology and control issue and then the cost, because uh, it, does this require you to have to do more maintenance than less maintenance on a vehicle? I, well, what do you guys I, think? I read the extra costs was estimated to be $3,000, which really surprised me. I would have thought it would be more than that. I agree with you more. I thought it was going to be higher. Um, yeah, maintenance issues for certain are definitely going to be higher. I, I think of up here in Indiana where we have lots of snow and potentially snow covering the sensors that would provide the ability for the computer to identify whether objects are out there. And, and so that could be an issue. But if we also look at um, the Prius in general, which is what this particular car that Google's using, I mean, the hybrid technology that it has uh is almost astonishing in and of itself. And I think it's been out since probably 2004, something like that. And um, it's even come a long way. And I don't think we hear a lot about battery maintenance and things of those nature, but I'm sure there will be something that um, will be coming to it. And Joe, you mentioned, you know, that the machine's taking over. I, I can just envision the very first commercial of this is Arnold Schwarzenegger driving up in a Toyota Prius and jumping out and saying, you know, come with me if you want to live or something like that. <laughs> oh, there are so many great science fiction abilities to market this thing. So maybe, oh, so maybe uh, Google would get the yeah, same guys that do the droid commercials that want to scare the heck out of you. You know, bombs crashing, oh, exploding, all I mean, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Nexus comes from Blade Runner, so it's it's entirely possible. You know, and I, um, I was just going to say, I do wonder, you were talking about insurance too. I wonder as those statistics get out there, if insurance costs will be driven down actually because of this, because of fewer accidents. Um, just like when I talked about bioptic driving, a lot of people don't know about it. But if you look at the bioptic drivers that are out there, their accident rates are far lower than your standard driver because they're much more careful than your standard driver. And I could see this having that same attraction. Um, in fact, I almost wonder if eventually the insurance companies may start to revolt against it because they wouldn't be making as much money off of people who were or paying into the system. Maybe there would be less insurance costs involved over a period of time. And that's a good point. 
about bioptic driving um, because every state is different. If you need or have the ability to use bioptics to drive, you'll want to look into your local state to see what's available because uh, in Texas, where I am, you have to take a driver's course. It's offered by some of the local lighthouses in the area, and you actually uh, can meet minimum statistics to be able to drive, or you might have to drive in daytime only if your vision allows. So for those who are looking to still continue to drive, you'll want to talk with your ophthalmologist and doctor and then look into your state's laws because each state is different on how they regulate that. I think the whole uh, autonomous car is probably going to come down to how well it is accepted by the general public. Uh, And that's kind of what car dealers are trying to work with now. They're sort of forcing people to sort of get used to the car doing things like parallel parking and the fact Mm -hmm. that I think it's infinity has sort of a lane detection. If you start to bob or weave outside of your lane, it'll sort of auto correct for you. And, uh, Volvo, I didn't realize had, uh, pedestrian detection. I could use that in Raleigh here (laughs) to sort of stop you or make you swerve a little bit to stay out of the different areas that you shouldn't be going. Yeah. Why did Google do this? I think it's more along the lines of trying to sort of get the awareness out there and it hasn't really been, but two years since they actually announced that, hey, we're doing a car that can drive itself. And I think sort of the Steve Mahan thing is sort of kind of getting the sort of sympathy vote of, hey, look, it's a scary technology, but look at what kind of good we can do. We can mm-hmm. take a guy to Taco Bell. <laughs> when yeah. I even think of, of some of the different things that are going on in the country right now, like we look at the cost of energy that's just exorbitant and continues to increase. If Google wanted to market an energy-efficient car. First of all, they've got a hybrid. They've got something that's autonomous. And if it's autonomous and able to communicate within a network, you can make engineering traffic much, much smarter than what it is currently. I mean, now we've just got stoplights that you hope they sense that when you're there, if they even do that at all. You had a network that was talking to each other. You could actually control traffic flow where, obviously people right now about their only communication is you know giving each other bad looks and a particular finger if they don't like the other driver but if you could make all of that talk to each other think of the energy costs that you could actually save maybe even drive down the price of fuel it's kind of interesting to see how people are actually adjusting to the idea like you say uh it will save energy costs and things i believe back in was it the 90s in California? They actually tried sort of a track where cars would go by magnets and it would sort of pull them along. And they actually found that it improved people's commutes on these particular lanes because you didn't really have to worry about people speeding up, slowing down, that kind of thing. There's been a few different surveys done as far as what kind of people would actually be interested. And J.D. Power and Associates did one where... 37% of people surveyed out of uh, 17,000 or so folks actually said that they would be interested, but because it would cost $3,000 for an add-on of the car, they sort of eh, only 20% would be interested at that point. But like Jeremy had said earlier, uh, 18 to 35-year-olds were more into it, like 37% of it. But as always, men like the gadgets and 25% of them like the idea, but women are still a little bit skeptical. Why is that, Mari? I, I was <laughs> they really... They have to pitch it. They, they, they have to pitch it. <laughs> I was really surprised by that. <laughs> right? It, um, I would think the... I mean, don't women buy more automatic than standard cars? Or am I wrong about that? 
I'm not sure. Automatics. Okay. Mostly automatics. Okay. So I, w- I was really surprised by that um, because I think of men as wanting the control. <laughs> they want to turn the wheel where they want to turn the wheel into that Taco Bell. Um, and they're not going to think that a machine is going to do it better than them, right? <laughs> so that really surprised me. But, yeah, I do think it's going to take years for people to kind of wrap their head around it. They need a commercial, Maury, where people are eating or texting or mm-hmm. on their laptop while the car is driving. Mm-hmm. They just haven't pitched it the right way, right? So um, well, you need all the stereotypes. You need the lady looking in the mirror doing her makeup. You need <laughs> all the... I mean, yeah, but that's the kind time, of stuff that scares me is I don't want someone to be texting or having a cocktail party while they're, they're driving. <laughs> well, I mean, we in this room have enough sight at times to see other drivers yeah. do terrible things. Mm-hmm. Um, be it, you know, reading the newspaper or, you know, like you said, having a seven course meal with silverware in front of the steering wheel. And uh, I think of this uh, fantastic Jay Leno headline ad once where they had a memo pad in the middle of the steering wheel and the guy's on his phone and he's writing a note and Jay says, okay, which hand is he using to drive? You know, in this ad, um, there are people who are doing this all the time, but they discount it because of that control. You're absolutely right. It's one of those where I'm in control. I feel comfortable doing it, but I don't like that anybody else is doing it, but I'm okay with it. And that's where it has to come generationally. I think it's no surprise 18 to 35 finds that way more understandable than those who've been driving for a very long time who wouldn't be willing to let go. Well, even look at um, anti-lock brakes. I've got a relative who doesn't like to buy a car with anti-lock brakes just simply because he wants the control. And I'm thinking, you know, anti-lock brakes make things so much safer. You don't have to worry about pumping the brakes. The car can do it much faster, much smarter than what a person can do. And uh, now it's common. I think, I don't know if it's required by law that all of them have them now, but just about every single car on the on a new lot, it's going to have ABS analog braking system. Um, I could kind of see this going the same route. I guess one of the the bigger issues that's going to affect this is just like everything else, technology moves much faster than government, and so how are our laws uh, going to be changed in order to allow something like this? Because ever since horse-drawn carriages. We've had pretty much the same type of driving laws and the same type of restrictions, and that we've got a century's worth of driving where people are always in control, and now that's changing. And how is that going to be uh, manipulated, or or how is that going to affect this entire idea of an autonomous car? Well, I think one big difference is going to be the fact that a visually impaired person might actually be able to get into one of these types of vehicles faster than someone that is, say, totally blind, because wasn't it last year that they did the blind driver challenge and you had to look like you were a Battlestar Galactica starfighter or something in order to actually drive and control the car and things. So it might be something that our community might have a little bit faster advantage to than someone that is totally blind, I would think. And mm-hmm, having the true. acceptance and having the acceptance of the general public might be a little bit easier because you can actually see something and interact with things around you. Granted, if the car is driving by itself, 
I just wonder if the person actually sitting in the seat is ever going to pay attention to what's in front of them. You know, once you get comfortable with something, you ignore everything around you. That's why people text into light poles and things. So anyway, it seems like everyone's excited about the Google car and the possible technology advances. Will we see it in our lifetime? I'm not really sure. Uh, Estimates are that general public folks might get it possibly in 2020 uh, to go along with the vision required, I guess, for a driver's license. Well, as time goes by, we need to try and keep up with family, friends, colleagues, new acquaintances, and build sort of a social network for ourselves, or even your brand or company that you may work for. And this is sort of a wide range of topics, because you can talk Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn for businesses and contacts. You can even talk about MySpace. It's still there. Even after six years, it is still there. Poor, poor Tom. Poor lonely, lonely Tom. Yeah. He's still my friend on MySpace. Granted, nobody else is because they have all left. <laughs> For probably Facebook. Uh, Tom, Tom is on Facebook, actually. Tom has a profile. Yes, he does. Uh, but anyway, what kind of social networks do we all use. I mostly do Twitter because I don't care for Facebook because it changes so much. Uh, What about the rest of you? I'm not crazy about Facebook either. (laughs) I can never find anything in it. I don't know. I can't get into it. But And Twitter, I avoided for a long time because when I heard the term tweet roll, blog roll, whatever, the roll word, uh, it made me think that text... Rick roll? (laughs) Text is going to come in like flash and and you know your screen readers not going to read it and and I won't be able to use it but I was wrong and I kind of like Twitter even though I'm just beginning on it I primarily use um, both Facebook and Twitter I I didn't know MySpace was still in business even but okay I guess they're still around um Facebook is it, like everyone else. It drives me nuts that it changes every two weeks. And um, the idea of the switch from whatever they were doing before to this thing called the timeline just uh, reaffirms that Mark Zuckerberg is Mark Zuckerberg and not Steve Jobs. So it's uh, a little bit difficult, but it's a good way to stay in touch with family. I use Twitter for information. Um, I do both of those for for the GW Micro side of things. So always Facebooking and always tweeting. And um, blogging has kind of, um, I don't know, I still do it some sometimes, but it, it's not as common as what it, it used to be with me. It just seems like everybody's more into the micro blog stuff, the 140 characters of Twitter or the smaller little things on Facebook. But I know, Maury, I think you do a lot of, a lot of blogging. Yeah, I, I write for our blog on AI Squared, and that's a lot of fun because I can pretty much write whatever I want on <laughs> on any topic. Um, being a low vision, you know, usually it's about living life as a sight-impaired person. My life is my work, in, in a sense. I, I can just write about things that happen to me every day, whether it's with my daughter and being visually impaired, not being able to drive, or learning how to use a cane and wondering if I really need to use one. And it's kind of fun because I get a lot of interesting feedback. A lot of people saying, oh, I thought I was the only one that was going through that. So it, 
it is kind of fun. Even though a blog is usually somewhat of a one-way street, you're putting out information. You don't necessarily get two-way communication. You do get some, and uh, so it's kind of cool. I like it. I uh, read your blogs quite often. I think they're they're very well done. LinkedIn, I've been starting to use LinkedIn a bit more. Uh, I like the different groups they have now with like the assistive technology professionals and things of that nature. I have to admit, I have not yet jumped on the Google Plus bandwagon, but maybe I should. You'll, you'll be by yourself, mostly. I have a Google Plus account, and I use it for some things, but it's strange the way that each one of these networks defines followers or how you keep up with someone you're interested in. So be that on LinkedIn, you can have somebody as you know, kind of what Google does with circles. You can have a professionals list, a friends list, and things like that. Um, we use social media a lot at Sorotech, and um, we have mostly tweet feeds and because we like the immediacy of it. Uh, when you were talking about the one-way blog, that's one of the things that I like about Twitter is you have more direct communication and immediacy, and you can mm-hmm. do it in on an individual basis or on a group basis very quickly to disseminate information. And we have a Facebook page, but for all the reasons that everybody cited here, Facebook is just every time you think you've learned it, something changes or it's decided to go left instead of right. Or uh, there's apps when they introduced apps and all this other stuff to it, it, it became less about people and more about product. And that yeah. kind of shied me away from it. So I rarely ever use Facebook, but if I do, that's where my family is. And Twitter is where I want to go for communication LinkedIn is my professional life. That's where my professional contacts are. And and in fact, I have to kind of compartmentalize and remember which contacts are where because I try not to let one or all three cross over uh, because I I use each one of them specifically for something. Twitter recently, though, did the exact same thing that Facebook did. They made a change on the website that drove me absolutely crazy. There used to be the icon, your name, and then the buttons off to the side for retweeting or uh, replying. And they actually moved them back below the actual tweet recently that drove me crazy because I just learned it the other way and now they put it back the way it used to be. But I use Twitter on the web and I use Facebook generally on a mobile device. How do you guys use each one of, of the social medias? Are you on the web using the actual web portal or using a client or do you use the mobile? Well, I think as far as Facebook, uh, there was a recent report saying that the majority of Facebook users are actually mobile users over 50% of them. So there's probably going to be a going towards more mobile apps. Uh, as far as me, I seem to find that if I am using the Facebook app on the iPad, I'll actually go to that more than I will the website. Uh, as far as Twitter, I'll either use TweetBot or Echophone on the iPad or iPhone, but I never hit the website. I don't, there's something about the website that I just don't get into, but I keep trying to force myself to agree that TweetDeck is still a nice application, you know, because you can do multiple columns, you can do different searches, you can put all your list in different places and just hop from one to the next. But since Twitter purchased TweetDeck, it has gone downhill tremendously. So I've started trying to work with Echofon for the desktop, which is a free app. Uh, it's a lot more simplistic. You can't have spread out columns, but 
It's not too bad. I don't know. There's something about the website that I just don't get into. I don't know whether it's just I have to click to in order to get new messages or what. It's not really a stream sometimes. I think it's the website's difficult to use with screen magnification even because it, I don't know, it just, it's very, it's a cumbersome interface. It's not simple and streamlined. And I kind of end up the same way you do, Rodney. I end up using both Facebook and Twitter on my iPad. And um, typically I'm just using the the Twitter app and the Facebook app. Um, I stopped using TweetDeck a while ago, just like you did. But um, it uh, seems to have a more streamlined interface and typically gets me most of the information. Actually, I think it actually gives me information easier. I like Twitter on the iPad far better than I do on the website. It's a whole lot easier to get to things. So there's a link, just click on it. It opens up within the um, actual application rather than having to go to a, a browser. And it's just, it seems really well thought out. Uh, I kind of wish that the websites from both Facebook and Twitter would take cues from their mobile apps personally. I think it'd make it a lot more usable. Yeah, I'm amazed at how apps on these little tiny devices like an iPhone or an iPad are so well designed because they know they're on a small screen and they just, you know, make it flow better and they're just designed for the mobile device and therefore they're thought out much more thoughtfully. And as a blind or low vision user, that means they're simpler to use and it's easier to find stuff. I use twitter.com on my PC when I want to look at like how many followers I have or, or whatever, um, kind of the, the basic information. But I consider Twitter definitely as a mobile device thing. And I've kind of been experimenting with using the Twitter app on my iPhone and using the dictate button to read to it. And the first one I did, it took me so many tries that, you know, oh, that's not going to be any fun. The last one I did, it went really smoothly. So I'm anxious to try that a little bit more. And if I just don't seem to have the time to spend any time on Twitter or Facebook, I have this app called Voice Brief, and it's for an iDevice, and it wakes me up at a certain time in the morning and along with giving me the weather for the day and what's on my calendar for X number of days, however I have it set up, I can also have it read me the last five tweets from my friends and I think that number is adjustable and the last so many entries in Facebook. So even though I, I never go on my PC and look at Facebook or hardly ever, I can have my hand in it a little bit by listening to it in the morning. And it's just feeding me the information. I don't have to interact with it. Yeah, I have tried uh, different apps, but I keep always going back to the ones that allow me to do like different posts to multiple accounts because uh, TweetDeck is pretty easy as far as posting to multiple things because with my other podcast and a couple other things we've got going on, we tweet from different things. Joe, now you probably are more in tune with this idea of posting to multiple accounts and being a business. How does Saratech, 
actually go to maintaining all of the different podcast feeds for the SPN. We separate that out. Uh, <laughs> the um, the main feed is actually monitored by two or three staff, and uh, I end up doing a lot of our side ones, like um, Triple Click Home, that Android show, end of line, because I'm reading those stories anyway for Serotalk. So for me, there's a little cross-pollination. When you do a technology show, you kind of read a lot. But if I'm already in there, then I'm going to go ahead and grab those. And that's where it gets really crazy because if you're retweeting news or if you're trying to find a story to pass along to others, you have to find those little buttons for Twitter or Facebook or StumbleUpon or any number of 55 other social networks that come and go. And websites don't put those in the same place twice. If you're on uh, Read, Write, Web, or Ars Technica, which is ours is one of the easier ones to find, or Engadget, or even somebody's personal WordPress blog, they may decide to put those buttons at the bottom of the post. They may decide to put those buttons for retweeting and sending to Facebook or plus oneing at the top of the post. They may decide that that looks ugly, so they just put a share button which doesn't really let you know that you can get to all those other buttons by clicking share. Uh, they may put it off on the right side of the website away from the general column of text for a screen magnification user. That means it's like playing Easter egg hunt. Every time you go to decide, Hey, I love this article. I want to share it with somebody. Where is the share button? And you have to go look all over the place for it. <laughs> And if you're using an aggregator site, like let's say Dig, and Dig is one of those where other social media people have recommended uh, articles and they go to the top of the pile, uh, they actually have modified uh, their URLs. So it says dig.com slash the article you're reading. So I don't necessarily retweet those because sometimes things will get messed up in URL shorteners. And by that, I mean a big, long 75-letter website address can get munched down to about six or seven characters because you have limitations on Twitter for posting than you do on Facebook. Well, Facebook actually does have a limitation. They've just upgraded it. So I think you can write a small novel now in a post, but the problem that you can have, and I've actually had to do this is I've actually had to go in, grab the headline and the website name, go to Google, and then just get a base link for that article in a Google search and then put it into a tweet feed so that way I can still tweet the article that I think is important. And and that's really a big problem is once when we get used to finding these links, once we get used to learning this website, uh, a lot of people think that low vision people have a better time of it because the, they can see the links or they can see the content. And that's not always the case. Sometimes we would be better off using a screen reader and just doing a links list and finding it a lot faster than uh, rolling all over the the screen trying to find the one thing that we think we can find quickly. And sometimes that's what I have to do. I have to rely upon uh, a more dedicated screen reader. That Where that works against us uh, is that more and more people are starting to tell their stories via a social network called Pinterest, where they just take pictures of objects and put them up there, maybe a one-line caption. And if someone takes a picture of something, it could be in low light, it could have some color issues, it could be blurry, and I I don't get it. And, <laughs> you know, it's like we're going back to Egyptian pictograms 
not only are we not blogging anymore, we're actually going back to just showing a picture of something to tell a thousand words. And for a low vision user, that can be very problematic, especially if you decide to use color filtering. If you run white on black, you're constantly having to change back to true color to be able to read a site uh, clearly or see a picture. And and that can cause some problems as well. Yeah, Joe, I, I also use screen magnification, zoom text like you, and I'm, I'm finding myself at 7x lately and... It's just ridiculous finding something visually <laughs> on a web page. So I've been using WebFinder a lot more lately. That was added in ZoomText 10. And once you start WebFinder, you can do Control-L and go from link to link. So it is actually a quicker way to find things. And it's sort of getting me into the concept of using the speech as opposed to the magnification, which at 7x, I really need to do. Right. You can learn a lot of information faster. What can happen, though, is that your default hotkeys can actually become conflicted with whatever hotkeys Twitter has. And there are actually hotkeys for Twitter. There are actually hotkeys for Facebook somewhat and some of these websites where they they put stuff in but you might not know them because the assistive technology you're using conflicts with that unless you do a key pass through. So there's also things that you might not even know are there, like a hotkey to jump you right into the status bar or a hotkey to jump you right to the next tweet. It's not very well documented and you sometimes have to do a search on your favorite social network to be able to find the hotkeys. But in a lot of cases, they're there. So you, ha- you have two ways of, of being able to combat that. You can learn your assistive technology and jump from element to element if everything works okay. Or you can kind of put your hotkeys to sleep for a little bit and try and use the hotkeys on the actual website. So you can do that. And, and those are options rather than you know scrolling. Also, you can use you know control and your mouse wheel to make things larger temporarily to go back and forth. And you can do that also in the view menu of most browsers, so you can increase the size on the text that you're looking at, uh, especially if it's someone's taken a picture of text and you can't see that and you've magnified it, but then it's a problem. Uh, sometimes scrolling the browser window, especially with browsers with hardware acceleration, can help a little bit. Yeah, in terms of changing the fonts, uh, I use a Microsoft ergonomic keyboard uh, model number 4000 and right between the g and the h is a little toggle wheel so i can sort of toggle up to increase the view and toggle down in order to decrease the view so that's kind of a good keyboard uh, to have if you want to do that without having to do control plus or anything like that in order to get the font larger Uh, As far as tweeting articles and stuff like that i do a ton of that on my personal account and on my podcast over at Tech Access Weekly. And what I do is I use a Chrome plugin because I use the Chrome browser for most things. Uh, I use a plugin called uh, Shareaholic. And once you actually get this set up (laughs) with all of your accounts, you can hit, if you're, say, on CNET and you want to tweet an article about something, you can just hit a T and it'll bring up a box and says, okay, which, where do you want to send this? And you can edit the post and all this kind of stuff and send it to multiple accounts at one time. Uh, But as with all of these shortcut types of things, you're going to conflict with your screen readers, your magnification software, and even the website, uh, because you'll go to something and be trying to type 
the word shared or something like that, and you'll hit a D and it'll automatically bring up my delicious page trying to bookmark it because I hit a D. So I sort of switch between that and Firefox in order to be able to avoid certain websites coming up if I'm just trying to browse just for general information. But that's a good uh, plug-in to check out for that. Do you find a difference when using social media on, say, IE, Internet Explorer, Firefox, Chrome? Because I, I sometimes do find behaviors in how sometimes the web browser renders things. I was interested that you were using Chrome for some of that because, you know, Chrome just crossed the supposed line that that separates them and Internet Explorer as being one of the more used browsers on the net. I'm still using version 15 because (laughs) I had to go into MS Config on Windows 7 and actually deactivate the Google updater because for some reason, websites like CNET and TechCrunch and things were actually breaking the browser. Cannot render link. I'm sorry. Cannot render. (laughs) You know, but Chrome... I don't seem to have a problem as far as like seeing different pages. Everything seems to render. If I'm using Internet Explorer 9, I seem to have more issues with a page not being compatible with IE9. You know, and you have to go up and you either have to turn on compatibility mode or, oddly enough, sometimes you have to turn off compatibility mode just to get a screen to work. Compatibility mode, yeah. You know, especially it's kind of like with Gmail. Gmail is horrible (laughs) in Internet Explorer 9 because – it's trying to refresh and do different things. And I've just had a time with that. So I, I just kind of go with the Chrome. Me likey Chrome. <laughs> <laughs> I never really had very much good luck with IE9 at all. But Firefox, I use constantly. And I, I have to admit, I've, I haven't used Chrome all that much. But um, I hear good things about it. But uh, Firefox is my default web browser just because it seems more compatible with more things. I, at least in my view, I know they switched a lot of the underlying technologies in IE9, and it just seems like that hasn't, uh, I don't know, at least from my user experience, it hasn't gone over very well. Well, one drawback to Chrome that I've run into is that in using Zoom text and trying to use the reader function to like read a page or something, I have better success with Firefox or Internet Explorer. Chrome isn't quite as good when it comes to using a screen reader to read articles and things, but I mostly try to skim it visually. So are you guys using more magnification software and screen reader, or how does that work? Because I know in previous discussions offline, we had talked about using the iOS devices and using voiceover to read tweets and things. And I haven't quite grasped that concept or gone to that method of reading info. When I'm on my mobile devices, I'm usually using zoom. Sometimes I'll use voiceover, but the majority of the time zoom, if I'm on the PC side of things, then it's probably 70, 30, probably 70 zoom texts and 30% window eyes kind of depending on the day and where my eyes are at. But um, like Joe said, there are times when it's just easier to use speech than it is trying to find something with magnification. And from training a ton of people, I can see how a lot of times my clients who are totally blind are actually faster than my low vision clients because the low vision clients are trying to use the mouse and move around the screen and try and find where it's at, where the blind clients just hitting a hotkey and, and there it is. And they start to move a whole lot faster than people with low vision. And so it kind of depends on uh, where you're at. Like Maury mentioned, she's at 7X. Once you start to reach that tipping point, which is kind of where I'm at too, the 6, 7X mark, 
it, it starts to become easier with speech than it does with magnification. When you're looking at magnification, and one of the the coolest things that Zoom Text has in it is the viewfinder, which, if I remember correctly, is Control Shift V. I believe that is correct. Look at that. <laughs> Use that all the Entering time. Entering view mode, Control Shift V. That is a great way to find out how much of the screen you're being able to see magnified. And a great experiment is to take yourself down to 1.25x, do a Control V, and then increase it occasionally to say 2 or 2.5 or 3. And when you get past 2, you're you're literally now seeing one-fourth of the screen. You're limiting yourself and seeing only one of those. And that's at a default resolution of 1080 by 768. And that's important, too. Knowing what your video card can render properly, knowing how to set your video card, especially if you have someone in your household who plays games on your computer who could possibly bump it up to a very higher resolution. You come in one day and go, wow, my vision really sucks. What what's go, What happened? You know, I, I went to bed seeing this just fine. And you may find out that the resolution had to be changed so somebody could render their game properly. And that can mean you jumping from a 2X to a 4X. It's not that you're seeing worse and you need 4X. It's just that the resolution required you to increase. So it's always good when you're talking about magnification and X to establish a baseline. So 1080 by 768 is usually what most monitors and what most websites are rendered at at the time that we record this. And you also have to take into account the size of the monitor as well, because if you're using a Mm -hmm. 24-inch monitor, your fonts are a little bit larger regardless than, say, a 19-inch monitor. So that's also... And if you have certain types of vision loss, if you're central vision loss and you only see the, the edges of the screen, having a larger monitor can work against you. Think of it like having a five acre plot and you're trying to actually mow things and how much you can mow them. If you have nothing but central vision, a 40 inch monitor means that you're trying to mow that plot with a push mower versus, you know, doing a tractor. Some people would say, okay, if I get a bigger monitor, I should be able to see everything better. Depending on your vision, that actually can work against you. So going to Best Buy, Fry's, or one of the stores that have a lot of monitors can help you get an idea that you may have a better experience having a smaller monitor and enlarging your text than having a bigger monitor and and still trying to cover the same idea with that push mower. I see a lot of people that have RP that go through that. If you're going to sit close to your monitor, no matter how big it is, um, then the bigger monitor, you, you might feel like you end up having to stand up to see the... <laughs> the top of the screen. So I I can only go so big, like a 22 to 24 inch monitor works pretty well for me. Any bigger than that, I would have to move my head around a lot and then I have neck problems. So, but you know, I have a lot of customers who've called me and say they bought a big giant monitor and they love it. So to each his own. Sure. So beauty's in the good eye, working eye of the beholder. So there are some people use a monitor valet where it's a monitor on an arm and they bring the monitor closer for some tasks and then push it away from others. And those are, you know, ideas that you can use that can also save space because if you're thinking about having a computer and a video magnifier that may be PC enabled or something like that, then you're starting to take up a lot of desk space. You're using one of those huge three-sided desks that you see at Office Depot and you go, who would use all of that? Well, I, I could with my Mac and everything else that I have. 
because you need that that ability to have some desk space and it's why some people have chosen the video magnifiers that have the camera off to the side attached to a monitor because they can just move that whole thing aside and get their desk space back as opposed to a traditional XY table with a monitor on top kind of thing. Because if you're in a cubicle at an office, you know, 48 inches is all you got. You got to figure out how to make all that work. And therefore, some people choose video magnifiers that are on arms that extend outwards or get that monitor space back with a monitor valet. So there are lots of options. And I know that isn't necessarily what we were talking about here with social networking, but it is if you're having to look at pictures and text and a whole bunch of other stuff all at one time. But it all kind of fits together. I mean, mm-hmm. you're you're talking about using websites and different things uh, at work. I just recently got a dual monitor stand for two 22-inch monitors. On the left monitor, I keep my email and everything that I need to use Zoom text with, and then I've got my mainframe screen off to the right, which I can't really interact with using Zoom text other than zooming in every once in a while. The font's pretty large on that. And it's a huge difference just to be able to sort of separate where I am all the time, you know, uh, and being able to actually compartmentalize, okay, I'm working on this screen, but I can also jump over here and have a zoomed in experience if I need to. Uh, That's the beauty of speech though. When you let say a screen read on the left side, a long article, I've been doing speech enough that I can actually do other things while listening to a document. If it's a long document and I'm not going to tire my eye out trying to read it visually, unless I want to go back and check like fonts or make sure that all the spacing is correct or underlined or things like that. It's a long article. I can get through it way faster with speech than I can relying on my vision. Plus if I need to do something else like stuff envelopes or fold clothes or something like that, I can multitask with speech. Yeah, I agree. And I, I've had not much problem adapting to voiceover on the iPhone and iPad. I feel even on the larger screen of the iPad, I would need magnification to see it visually, and I find using magnification on the iPad is cumbersome. It doesn't have tracking, and you have to kind of move your finger all around to get where you want to go. But using the voiceover is you don't need magnification, and you just point, and it says what it is. Although I haven't been able to adapt that to when I'm using the PC. (laughs) I'm still using 7X instead of learning the Zoom text hotkeys. I haven't been able to make that adjustment oddly on the PC. I think I want a touch screen. (laughs) Maybe that'll do (laughs) it for me. I think you touch on a big problem that a lot of people have is we all want to hold on to our eyesight as long as we absolutely possibly can, even if it means that our eyes are just killing us at the end of the day from from eye fatigue. Right. And I see a lot of people who will be using 10, 12x magnification when they should really be using speech simply because of they want to hold on to their sight. And it's a difficult process because I think it's not just a physical thing, but it's an emotional thing. Once you switch to speech, you're really saying to yourself that I have lost so much sight that I have to change the way that I'm doing things. And I think a lot of people have a a difficulty adjusting to that. Yeah. Sure. As long as I can see the big E, I still see. And I I, I wouldn't have any problem with doing that, but it's also the time to put in and sit down and 
train myself mm. to do it. Mm. Um, and by the way, before I forget, <laughs> ZoomText will be working with IE9 shortly. <laughs> I apologize for the long wait, but it's coming soon. It's funny that you mention it that way because one of the things that I'd always heard about learning voiceover and Zoom on the Mac was that you had to go cold turkey on Windows, you know, because it is such a different way of using assistive technology. And certainly the trackpad has made that a little easier because if you know your your Windows, excuse me, oops, if you know your <laughs> iOS gestures, you have a better understanding of how it works with voiceover on the Mac and they keep adding more functionality to the Mac to make it more iOS-like. Hmm. So that way, if you know you're your iPhone or iPad, you can use the Mac a little better. But just the way that voiceover and Zoom track, just the, the hotkey combinations, I literally, one Christmas, had to just use the Mac the entire Christmas vacation to learn it because it's different than a Windows screen reader. And, and like what you were saying, Maury, I've grown accustomed to using those tools in those ways to be able to be efficient with them. And so I think you're right. I think it's a matter of control and a matter of wanting to be efficient in some ways. Mm -hmm. How can I get this to work faster? So it's, I'm working with the technology, not against the technology. Mm -hmm. And I didn't accept my blindness till I was 29. And I've got a big Klingon ridge in the middle of my forehead from walking into stuff because, you know, I sold video games and televisions to sighted people. No way am I visually impaired. And a lot of that is finding the moment that you can do this and empowering yourself, understanding that you're still you. Yes, there's a certain part of you that can't do that anymore, but there's going to be a lot of that as you get older. There's going to be many things that you're going to have to accept. And this is just one of those things that, once when you can get your mind wrapped around it and learn that this can assist you and make you faster and put you on the same level as your sighted peers, then it's no longer a matter of what have I lost. It's a matter of what have I gained and what has empowered me to go forward. And that I think is important. It, it takes a long time. I'm not going to say it's going to come overnight and it does take practice and determination, but the more that you do it, and the more that you just rely on, let's say, with Maurice 7X, she goes with speech a little bit more, but uses the magnification as sort of a camera. She starts at the beginning of a paragraph. She's still using her usable vision, and it still makes her faster in some ways. But being able to have speech then take over while she does something else would make her even more faster and efficient in other ways. Yeah, that's kind of where I am. I'm, I'm sort of trying to figure out how to incorporate speech into what I do. Most of the time, I'm just too impatient to sit there and <laughs> plunk along with the screen reader. You know, I get I get frustrated with, okay, it's not quite working. Oh, crap. I'll just read it. <laughs> you know, but in my particular job situation at work, I'm mostly, okay, I got to read some emails here and there. And then I'm on the mainframe, which a screen reader can't do anything with. It just says, image image can't read it so <laughs> so i'm kind of i'm kind of out of luck when it comes to that um so yeah it's it's a challenge and i am 39 and still trying to figure out how to incorporate that so go figure <laughs> but you have now, so many options now and that's the great thing yeah. and and that comes back around to social networking you have 
options out there to ask others. You have uh, groups out there who can give you ideas. There are mailing lists. Uh, there are people you can reach out to. Before, it used to be that you had to go to the library every third Thursday to meet with the Guide Dog Users Group. You know, now you just need a, a good Google search or a good cache of friends or contacting your local advocacy group or reaching out to your uh, state-funded Division of Blind Services Commission for the Blinds or what have you. There's so many more options now to find out that you aren't alone, that you you are one of many that are going through the exact same situation. And just on this podcast, we've all learned from each other with our experiences. And that's kind of what we designed it to do. Exactly. As a matter of fact, in a couple of weeks, I'll be going up to Rutland, Vermont, because our rehab tech in Vermont is going to do a thing on using the iPhone and iPad if you're visually impaired. So, and, and that's much more valuable than getting training from someone who has no idea what voiceover is. So there are things out there for sure. Well, as we can all see, social networking can actually build into even more conversations because there are multiple ways to actually get things done, interact with people. We're actually able to find more and more individuals out there with the same concerns and issues that we all have and this whole just conversation has sort of led us in that direction of, do you need a screen magnifier? Do you need a screen reader? Uh, how are you actually interacting with the computer? And it just builds and builds. I think we all know that that's kind of why high contrast is here, because when you're talking on Twitter, like with my podcast, you mentioned something about Twitter and trying to use TweetDeck or some application. Everybody pipes in, well, aren't you using the cube or are you using uh, Quitter, uh, that kind of thing? Well, no, I'm, I'm a visual user. So high contrast is kind of bringing the visually impaired community to a particular place, and that's a good thing. I believe right now this would probably be a good place for a short break. And during that, Joe Steinkamp is going to review Asteroids Gunner for iOS. And we'll be back in a few on the Saratalk Podcast Network. Hey, what's up? Thinking about you. XOXOXO. Want to snuggle, dot, 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 JK, hit me back, you getting these texts, question mark, we should hang later, I miss you, holla at your boy, holla back, holla back, holla back, are you at home, where are you, what are you doing, OMG, you are making me mad, are you with your ex, you better text me back. I'm waiting outside your house. Relentless, aggressive texting is like sending an angry robot to deliver your message. When does the robot become dangerous? Let us know at thatsnotcool.com. That'snotcool.com. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Hi everyone, Joe Steinkamp back with another app review for High Contrast. And again, I'm going to reach over to my iPad 1 running iOS 5.1. And this is around ooh, summer of 2012, so that gives you an idea of where I am on the testing circuit. 
And this is Asteroids Gunner from Atari. Now, like the old game used to imply, and that being Asteroids in the old 80s arcades, uh, you have a ship that sits in the middle and Asteroids that spin around you and then you spin in circles and destroy them. Pretty simple stuff. Well, the updated version, Asteroids Gunner, isn't too far off that. In fact, uh, your ship sits in the center of your view, and you have two thumbsticks, virtual of course, at the bottom left and the bottom right corners of the iPad or iPhone. And you actually can spin your ship around with the left thumbstick and shoot in any direction on the right thumbstick. And that's technically called a twin stick shooter in video game terms. The neat thing is that you actually have some power-ups along the way. So you can actually get extra shields temporarily. You can increase your ship to have missiles or lasers or ice beam weapons. And that'll allow you to break up all the asteroids a little faster. The backgrounds are really the best part about this game. There's a very muted brown, there's a gray, there's kind of a greenish sector. There are three sectors in all, 50 waves in each sector. And uh, those vary depending on how many ships you blow up. But it's easy to see, and that's kind of what I like about it. The asteroids are really huge, and even when they're really small, they kind of stand out on the background. The other thing about this is that if you use voiceover, it actually will read some of the menus when you want to do upgrades between waves or if you want to add uh, things to your ship. Because there are actually dollars, well, space bucks, if you will, that you can spend within the game. And it is really great on being able to uh, have a nuclear warhead to blow up everything on screen at once. There's even a little alien starships. There are two versions of this game on the App Store. There's the traditional free version or the freemium version where you start off uh, with everything being closed off in some places. And you have to earn your points to be able to get ships and waves and other things like that. Then there's a version at this point at which I'm doing the uh, review for $4.99 on the App Store, which is called... Asteroids Gunner Plus. Now the big difference there is that uh, you can unlock the other two galaxies which have 50 waves each and you can unlock eight ships uh, at the beginning rather than having to spend real world money later on in an in-app purchase if you do the free version. Now I've had the app for a very long time and the way to get it for free was much easier. They've changed that when they did Asteroids Gunner Plus. So I advise everybody to kind of play the free version, see if you like it, see if it's your cup of tea, and then wait for that Asteroids Gunner Plus to go on sale. It usually does about once every three months. It goes down to about 99 cents. And that is totally worth it if you don't want to spend real world money or tons of money uh, within the game to try and get those extra add-ons. And to be honest with you, the extra ships don't change the experience all that much. If you really want a good pro tip, do your best to get the kind of tugboat of all three ships in the initial one. That's the uh, hauler that uh, allows you to go around. It has more hull and you can actually plow into more asteroids. It is slow and it doesn't shoot as fast, but you can actually survive a little bit longer in the beginning when you're just learning the game because that ship is actually a bit of a tank and can a lot of damage. Otherwise, the standard ship isn't too bad, and it'll help you get through some of the upgrades really quick. So that's Asteroids Gunner on the iOS App Store from Atari, and uh, I'll be back on another episode to tell you about more high-contrasty type apps.
This is going to wrap up episode two of High Contrast. We definitely want to thank all of the listeners for sending in your comments, suggestions, all that feedback and things. You can do that at resources at saratalk.com. You can check out the podcast on iBlink Radio on Android and iOS. And I want to say that we are probably going to continue our discussion of how to be organized and sort of build right on our previous conversation about social networking that sort of grew into a whole nother topic. So that'll probably be coming up in episode three. Uh, let's see, who did we have on this here podcast? To my virtual left, it is Mari Hill. Where can they find you, Mari? You can find me at aisquared.com slash blog. And also Twitter. My name on Twitter is Maury Elizabeth. M-A-U-R-I-E Elizabeth. And to my right is going to be Jeremy Curry of GW Micro. Yeah, you can uh, find me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore Curry, or if you want to follow the the branding I do on social networking, you can find uh, GW Micro at GW Micro or on Facebook.com slash GW Micro, and I'll be tweeting and Facebooking at all those pretty much all the time. (laughs) And to the guy who could take up 10 minutes, Joe Steinkamp. I'll try and do it less than 10 on this. Uh, you can find me at twitter.com slash ranger station. That's all one word, twitter.com slash ranger station. And if you're new to the SPN network, you can find us over at serotalk.com or eolshow.com. Those are two other programs that I'm affiliated with. And uh, uh, you can also follow us on at Sarotalk, if you want to get the latest on what's going on in the SPN world. And I, again, am Rodney Edgar. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Rodney Edgar, R-O-D-N-E-Y-E-D-G-A-R. You can also follow Tech Access Weekly at T-A underscore weekly on Twitter. And I guess this will wrap up episode two. Thanks so much for listening, and just keep in mind, we're all in partial sight. <laughs>